I don't think we thought that it was going to be as tough of a sell because most of our clients that we have worked with and that we know very well and know how they sell, how they operate, they're all SaaS companies. So they all sell software as a service, which is a subscription model. And we thought this would be something that, of course, they would understand the benefits of it because they're saying to their customers, here's the benefit of a subscription. It's really hard for the legal field to turn that corner because law traditionally has already been 10 steps behind in terms of technology compared to even the largest corporate companies. So law firms are already lagging in that way. And to throw this at in-house counsel, we were overly optimistic to think that they would swarm to adopt this idea. Hello, my name is Abhijat Sarasworth, and you're listening to Fringe Legal, the source of cutting-edge content for legal professionals. On the show today, we have Joyce Tong Ulrich, co-founder of recently launched boutique Tong Tijani, specializing in government contracting. Prior to the launch of her practice, Joyce was an in-house attorney at Facebook and Microsoft for almost a decade. On the episode, you'll hear why and how Joyce decided to leave to set up her own firm with a difference. Before we go into it, there are three lessons I took away. Number one, when you're introducing change, which will require any amount of unlearning and then relearning, build in steps that increase the level of comfort with the new way over time. This was key to this was key to moving the firm's practice towards a subscription-based pricing model. How Joyce and her partner set up progressive steps from hourly billing to fixed-free work to eventually subscription models for the same client. Number two, do discovery. Whether from your own experience or from talking to customers in the field, understand what would add more value to them or just as important, what diminishes the value of the experience for them, which you can solve for. And number three, there's a saying that Paul Graham, the founder of Y Combinator popularized, which is do things that don't scale. In his essay, which I'll link in, in the show notes, he states that startups take off because the founders make them take off. And some of the things that make up the special source that's needed early on for a enterprise to succeed, which give you that level of depth or insights, come from things that just don't scale. The onboarding experience that Joyce talks about is a prime example of this for me, understanding really what the client and their business is all about becomes this competitive differentiator that really helps them stand out in the market. By the way, if you're enjoying the podcast, you'll love the Fringe Legal Newsletter. It's full of ideas and resources to make you six times better at your role. Subscribe for free at fringelegal.com slash newsletter. Okay, so without further ado, let's get to the episode. Welcome, Joyce. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, I wanted to speak to you since uh, I heard about what the firm was doing, but for anyone who isn't familiar with you and your story, would you mind just telling us a little bit about why you decided to start a firm just over a year ago and a little bit more about 
what the focus of the firm is and we can go from there. Sure. So about a year and a half ago, my current law partner called me up out of the blue and said, I have this crazy idea. I think we should start our own law firm. And at the time I was traveling for work, training employees, and I get this strange phone call. The interesting thing about Zora and I is that we both worked at Microsoft and that's where we we met, but we never worked side by side. So we always were like ships passing in the night. We would see each other, wave high, and then keep going. Both of us left Microsoft within a year of each other. She went to VMware and I went to Facebook. And that was the, the catalyst to force us to stay in touch with each other. And we would periodically meet to talk about what we were facing in-house, how we were dealing with it, and of course, catch up on life. And we were starting to see the same trends in all of our discussions together. And that was the reason why she called, was because she said, I feel like we're both hearing the same thing in terms of the type of legal services we're receiving, whether it's worth the money. And we're always unhappy with what we're getting. I think we can do better. So she planted the seed. We talked about it for six to nine months and it started, it was very wide ranging. So all options were on the table when we first started from going to another law firm, going to a boutique law firm that was already specialized in government contract law or starting our own. And we had goalposts in, in place saying, we can do it for a year. We can do it for two years. We had to see interest from our client base. And after talking through all of the different options, we chose not to go to a law firm and we did choose to start our own law firm. So we did that in October of 2019 and then COVID hit. So it's been a very interesting start to our law firm. It sounds like the inception came from solving the problems that you were having, which is a good place to start. And then doing, I'm guessing, some testing in the market to see, are you the only two people who are experiencing this or are there others? And to start finding a demand, is that what happened? Or are you just dove straight into it and just went from there? We knew from talking with other in-house counsel that we were facing the same broad challenges in terms of budgeting issues, not knowing what your legal budget is going to be from one month to the next, receiving work product that was thrown over the fence. Hey, this is what we're interested in. This is your answer, but never really answering the question or giving actionable advice. So they would tell you what the law said, but not tell you how that law applies to your particular scenario. And that was really what started our thinking of, we need action. We need to be able to act on the advice that is given and started thinking about why our outside law firms weren't able to give us that type of advice. And one of the reasons our hypothesis was part of it could be that they don't really know their client's business that well. And that led us to the hourly billing model, because if you're going to charge your client on an hourly basis, you can't spend time on a client getting to know their product because they're not going to want to pay for that. And then as a firm, 
the associates all have metrics that they're working against. They can't just spend random hours of time getting to know a particular client, even though that helps them in the future in terms of how they advise. So that was one of the things that we thought about and tried to figure out how we could fix that problem in a way that would be beneficial for us and for the client. It's so interesting because it's just a matter of short term versus long term, because if you're able to do a lot of that work up front, yes, you probably aren't able to charge your client for that, but longer term, theoretically, and if you look at pretty much any other sector where they don't charge by the hour, that's exactly what you have teams that are, that spend way more time researching, understanding, doing discovery work on their clients. So when you actually go to talk to your clients, you know, actually, hopefully a lot more about their business than they do. You've been able to go and this is exactly the world of consultants. You are able to uncover things which they're like, wow, we didn't know this. Whereas that's hardly ever the case when it comes to firms providing services to, to councils. Correct. And, and I think one of the eye-opening pieces of our practice so far is a lot of times our clients are coming to us for a hybrid sort of legal service. So they want the legal service, but they also know that we have the experience from being at these large companies of how they implemented certain things. So they also want our input on when you were at a big tech firm, how did they approach this issue in terms of you would get the same advice. You need to do X, Y, and Z to comply with the law. How did they do it? And so we'll go in and say, okay, so you know that you have to do X, Y, and Z. We can skip over a couple of those steps that of trial and error because we've seen other companies do it and had them fail. So we know what the solution should be. And it tends to be one of those situations where if the client really understands that value proposition, they get a lot more out of working with us than those that don't. If, if they just are looking for a traditional law firm that's just going to tell them, this is what the law says, and you go figure out how to do it and not help them implement, then we're not the right firm for them. <laughs> for sure. And talk to me a little bit about, at least from my research, one of the things that stood your firm apart was the fact that you were offering this description model in terms of pricing. And from what I read, theoretically, that sounds like a wonderful idea because one of the problems you're solving is saying you have an issue in that, in the fact that you get variable billing, you have no idea what your costs will be for legal spend month to month or quarter to quarter. Here is a subscription model. So you can, we'll charge you X per month or whatever payment terms you have. And it's great. It didn't sound like it went down as well <laughs> from the outset. I don't think we thought that it was going to be as tough of a sell because most of our clients that we have worked with and that we know very well and know how they sell, how they operate, they're all SaaS companies. So they all sell software as a service, which is a subscription model. And we thought this would be something that, of course, they would understand the benefits of it because they're saying to their customers, here's the benefit of a subscription. It's really hard for the legal field to turn that corner because law traditionally has already been 10 steps behind in terms of technology compared to even the largest corporate companies. So law firms are already lagging in that way. And to throw this at in-house counsel, we were overly optimistic to think that they would swarm to adopt this idea. 
So what we've discovered is that you still need to establish that relationship first. And we need that. So a lot of them are trying, they give us random projects that they would like to have done and they see if we're a good fit for them and they see what our value proposition is. So that's one of the clients that we talked about or that we talk about is they started out giving us fixed fee projects, three or four of them here, let's do this, let's do this. And then spanned over four months. And then at the end of the four months, the in-house counsel came to us and said, okay, I have a list of seven other projects that need to get done. I don't want to have you quote me a price for each one of those projects and have to keep track of all of those funds and how much money you need and all this other stuff. I don't want to deal with that. Just tell me what it would cost for us to have you essentially seconded to them for, for a month. And so we gave them, quoted them a price and they said, okay, we'll do that. And they didn't sign a contract. And the only thing we have is oral agreement. And we check in with her on a quarterly basis saying, hey, do you think you're getting what you wanted out of it? Are we feeling overwhelmed? And how do we balance this? And so far, it's six, nine months in, and she's still coming up with new projects for us. So we've completed the first couple of projects for her. Some of the ones that she thought she had for us are no longer the the bright, shiny thing that she needs to worry about. Because when you deal with tech companies, you always say the engineers get interested in the bright, shiny object and their attention goes really quickly to different things. But there are enough fires, quote unquote, to have to put out that she can find other projects for us. So it has been one of those situations where it's worked out really well. And it sounds like that the progression is then you go from hourly based billing to fixed free work to then a subscription model over time. Something that you, you mentioned triggered the thought. So how do you deal with, and you even said it, whether the work gets so much that it becomes out of scope. Is there some sort of a scope protection built in, but for your clients and for you to say, actually, this is great, but you're asking us to do 10 times more work than we had discussed or vice versa. They thought they would have, it doesn't seem like in, in this instance, that they would have a lot more work or, you know, a bit less work. And then you have to revisit the agreements. So are they, you know, similar to SaaS companies, do you have different tiers? So what happens? We do have different tiers and the tiers are less about how much work that they think they'll be able to give us and more about where in in the company maturity level the company is in. So we have a lot of small companies that are startups and they're not even just startups. They're angel investors or seed startups, right? So they have no money whatsoever <laughs> and they look very hard at every money, every dollar that goes out of their bank account all the way up to the Fortune 100 companies who can easily pay the same amount that that small startup can't afford. So really what it is, it depends on the type of work that is required. So for the small startup, their questions are going to be more simple, as in, how do we get government funding? Or do I need a subcontract agreement? Or what is this teaming agreement that people keep talking to us about? A lot of it is explanation of the market and, and what they're getting themselves into and what they need to watch out for. 
they probably don't have a ton of deals that they're closing. They may have one. And so what we say is, if you just want pick up the phone access and we will give you two 30-minute sessions with both of us each month, then you pay X amount of dollars for that. And that's usually geared towards the less sophisticated companies who really don't know what they're in for and don't know what they're getting into. For the larger companies, there is a whole range. And depending on how the company or the client wants to scope that particular subscription, the price will vary. So if you want something like a secondment where you want us on call and you want us to be two or three days dedicated to you, then obviously the cost is going to be more because we're going to be turning away other work. But if you really just want, we have another client that wanted us to handle 10 subcontract agreements and negotiate with 10 different vendors. That's fine. We can do that. We, we can quote you a set amount for each contract. And you can either do it in a subscription model where when they come in, it's when they come in, you just pay us the same amount and we'll handle them whenever they come in. Or you can pay by contract. We can do that as well. But I think a lot of it is based on what the client wants to do and how the client wants to envision it. We're seeing the smaller clients are more interested in the pick up the phone access and the large clients are more interested in, I need you on my beck and call whenever I need you. And so it's good to have that balance because we have some where they need all of our attention all the time. And then we have others where it's two times a month or they'll schedule a call with us. So it's, it works out. Yeah. And it sounds really interesting and it does seem like it helps to balance out both your own predictability as a business uh, and your time. Everything that you've said so far, it seems extremely focused on the clients, which is what you expect it to be, what you want it to be. Talk to me about what the onboarding of your clients look like, because again, this seems quite different to how a client may be onboarded into a law firm, right? It seems a lot more personal. <laughs> we try. What we try to do is dedicate at least one to two hours of our time up front to get to know them. So we'll ask for a product demo. We'll ask for maybe just talk to their sales team and have them give us a pitch of how they would sell their product, yeah. either to the government or one of their other cu customers. Because then we, we, we then understand what their go-to-market strategy is, if they don't have a go-to-market strategy, and what exactly are they trying to sell? Because so many things in the legal industry, especially for government contracts, it touches the entire spectrum of product development. It's not just the contracting and sales piece at the very end, which is a lot of times law firms come in then, or they come in after the fact when there's been a problem. That's where they focus. They're not necessarily the ones that are involved talking to the engineers and saying, oh, have you considered that you need to make sure that it's accessible to all sorts of different people? And how do you build that into your product? So I think the initial investment of time to really be, get to know them and understand what their business is, how they go to market, who their main clients are, and how they want to focus and what their product, what's the end for this company? If for the smaller companies, are they look, looking for a liquidity event? Do they need to raise capital? Are they planning on getting sold? Or are they really looking to go IPO and really stay in the market for a long time? That all affects how you counsel a particular client. 
the basics are always the same. But knowing that at the beginning lets you say, okay, this is a problem. You're if you don't address it now, when you sell, it's gonna cause this kind of decrease in valuation or anything like that. Yeah. And it sounds like that you're able to, by asking a lot of those questions up front, you're able to be a lot more proactive versus reactive, right? When things are already catching fire, that <laughs> you're like, six months ago, you should have thought about this when we filed for whatever it was. And that will hopefully save a lot more headache down the road anyway. So it, it sounds like the challenge of how easy or not so as the case was with, in terms of the pricing model, that was a, a learning. A year on, what have you learned that surprised you that wasn't one of your founding assumptions for the firm? I think one of the main things that we discovered, and it was just a lucky happenstance, is that starting a business with another person is like getting married. <laughs> and I don't think we realized it really matters who your partner is in terms of making sure that you're aligned in what your values are, what your goals are for the firm, what you will invest your time into, and also what you aren't going to invest your time into. So I think one of the things that we learned was Zora and I are very well partnered in that we have the same outlook. We have the same quality in terms of the work product that goes to the client. We have a very good rhythm where if we have to draft something, we know who has which part and who's good at which things, which for a practice, it's not something you think about when you first start. You really just think, okay, is this person an expert in the field? And do I think that they would be able to pull their weight? Yes, there are lots of people who can pull their weight, but it's really the other things, the intangibles that you don't know about that makes it so much easier to work together, which sounds like a duh, but I think it really was a light bulb that went on off in our head for halfway through where we were like, wow, this is so much easier because we don't disagree about these things. And when you were telling your initial story and you said you guys hadn't really worked together when you were at Microsoft and <laughs> ships in the night, that was one of my thoughts that either it was by design over the sort of six, nine months or just complete luck that you were able to find that you were able to work well together. I, I do. I think the analogy is after it's like getting married, you don't know what it's going to be like. Unless you start living with someone and you're like, oh, this person lives like this. They work like this. And you're hoping <laughs> it's the right thing. Right. I'm curious about, first, I'm assuming there's probably some type of work where having a subscription-based model, it's more likely to happen than not. And I'm thinking specifically of litigations, right? That's going to be pretty difficult to price just because of the amount of variables in play. Do you think that's fair or do you think this is something that could apply equally well to everything? I think that is fair, but I think there are also ways to uh, scope the subscription so you can handle litigation. That is, I, I want to say that law firms have more information on how much a litigation costs than they, they like to tell people. And I think it's possible to be able to say, hey, if you have between five and 10 litigations a year, given the size of your company, I know what that's generally going to, what it's going to cost. 
And if it's mostly consumer-based versus mostly B2B, again, differences that you can suss out. So I think that's actually not a barrier to the subscription model. I think what's harder is selling a product that they don't necessarily see in it. it a, a deliverable. So with litigation, you file papers, you you talk to the opposing counsel, you do all of those different things. Same with corporate transactions. You have a number of transactions, you have a date that they need to be closed, stuff like that. In terms of just the general day-to-day counseling, a lot of times the role that we play is that ear that says, hey, you may want to pay attention to this because of these regulatory requirements or, hey, this regulation just came out, it affects you, how are you going to deal with it? That is a much more difficult price point because they won't see it if you aren't doing anything or they think you're not doing anything, but you really are because you're keeping track of everything and you're making sure they're up to date. And then when there is a spike and there is something that goes wrong, you're there and you already know it all. So I think that's the more difficult part is where there's no concrete deliverable that they can point to their CFO and say, hey, this is what we're paying for. It's more, we're paying for them to be on call and you'll see that we had these spikes and these lulls, but it all evens out in the end. And I think that's the the difficulty in subscription pricing. Yeah, and actually, as you were saying that, I, I was thinking about security services. So things like people that keep your viruses and all that kind of stuff away. If the systems are working well, you have no idea there. Yep. It's when you really need them. That's when you really need them. And until then, you're just paying. It's almost like insurance. You're just paying for the peace of mind that things are working as they should be. Yeah. As you think about the future, do you think that this is something where the legal profession as a whole will eventually move towards? I know we hear a lot about the billable hour is dead. It needs to change. All of these other things. But do you think this is a viable alternative, knowing just even how difficult it was to convince your clients in the first place? Do you think eventually more and more clients will move down this path? I feel like there's going to be a shift in two ways. One is a move away from the billable hour. If that ends up being subscription, it could be more subscription-like project-based. So you have a list of projects that you're supposed to complete and a subscription for those projects. But I think the other thing is a lot of companies aren't looking for the all-in-one law firm anymore. They know that you go to this law firm for litigation, you go to this law firm for corporate transactions, and even litigation, you may not go to the same one if you want to litigate on the West Coast versus the East Coast, right? Like you'll have a different uh, law firm that you go to for those things. And I think... What it ends up being is instead of choosing a law firm for the fact that they can do everything soup to nuts, they're going to start finding people that they like. And it's not going to matter who the law firm is. It's just going to be the person. And when the attorneys start to see that, I think they're going to and And now that the technology is at the place where you can have practice management software that is cloud-based, it makes it so much easier to run your own law firm. They're going to jump ship and they're going to start taking those clients away because they realize that these companies are looking for them. And so when that happens, 
they're going to face the same thing we faced, which was you're a practice of one, two, three people. How do you scale? And how do you make sure that you can balance the different types of clients that come in through the door? So I think they will end up in the same place where they will try to do subscription-based because they do what they do so well that they can offer it as a subscription. I, I agree with you. And I, I like to think of it as the unbundling of the law firm. So you end up with very specialized kind of boutique practices, but each with different requirements, different offerings. And then you have to figure out how does that work from a business perspective, which is of course going to be very fun in the future. So in, in wrapping up, I like to think around and what other things I'm working on as a project is just contemplating what a perfect law firm might look like. And there's no easy answer to this. There's definitely no defined answer to this. But as someone who's, I guess, recently in relative terms started a law firm, what do you think is the secret source of a successful firm? You can give multiple, but at least I would want one word answer and then you can talk about it as much as you like. I think the secret to a successful law firm is the baseline is you have to love what you're doing, because if you, one of our core principles as our firm is that we look for people to do work that they enjoy, because when you do work that you enjoy, you do it really well. So that goes both for Zora and me, but it also goes for all of our alliance attorneys. We always look for the alliance attorney. We try to match the project to the attorney, right? So instead of a law firm where you get what is given and you get what is there. It's, ra it's more customized, just like we like to provide customized support for our clients. We want to find the right attorney to work on the right project. And I think that's the biggest difference. When you like what you're working on, you'll produce good work. You'll be able to have value because the client will see that you invested the time and energy in their work product and they'll come back for more. So I think all in all is the independence to find what you like and to offer what you like and to do it well. Because that's, I find so many times you go to law firms and people are really unhappy because they need to make their hours, but they're working on all sorts of random things that they don't necessarily like doing. So if I really think that's the key is that you have to like what you do. And if you're not having fun, it's not worth it. I think that's very well put. So uh, I guess in closing, are you having fun? Are you still enjoying the ride? What's next? I love it. It's, you know, I think we have a perfect meld right now of large clients, little clients, and trying to figure out what our next steps are going to be. But the large clients give us hard things to think about. The small clients have fun problems that you never would have thought about. So I think between the two, we're doing really well and we're very happy and it's definitely fun and we're definitely enjoying it. Wonderful, love it. And I'll include this in the show notes, but I assume if people want to find out more then the website is probably the best place and I'll, I'll link to your LinkedIn profile as well so they can reach out there. Sounds good. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I did recording it. If you found this episode, entertaining and enjoyed it then please share this episode with at least one other person that really helps us grow and enables us to have more awesome discussions in the future the show was produced for fringe legal by yours truly i'm jack saraswith 
And special thanks to our guest today. Until next time, stay well.